Well, good evening. It's every other Sunday again, and welcome to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly program focused on environment and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz, and today my guest is Robert Staten, a local physicist, author, teacher, programmer, inventor, technical writer, typesetter, bread baker, and worm farmer with degrees in physics and science communication, but not in politics or economics. Staten is author of Power Shift, From Fossil Energy to Dynamic Solar Power, uh, and his most recent book is Solar Dividends, How Solar Energy Can Generate a Basic Income for Everyone on Earth, which is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to read some encomiums from the back of the book. Uh, Bill McKibben says, a thought-provoking idea if there ever was one. Well, you'll have to hear the idea, of course. Dennis Hayes, some of you may remember Dennis. Robert Staten's new book makes a compelling argument that a solar revolution can lead to a fair, more equitable society. And our very own Rachel Goodman says this book could be a game-changer for our beleaguered planet. So let's get started with some questions. And, and I want to tell you, as a one-time physicist turned social scientist and all-around skeptic, I'm especially interested in the political and economic arrangements that would be required for your project. So we do have somebody here who knows something about politics or economics. Uh, but let's get started with the basics. So tell us about your background, what you do when you're not writing books and baking bread, and how you got into this business. Thanks, Ronnie. I'm glad to be here. I came to UCSC as a graduate student in physics. During the first solar boom, during the Carter administration, I immediately latched onto the idea of solar energy to save the world from fossil fuels and global warming. And with my physics background, I found I could explain energy to the average person. I taught solar energy at Cabrillo College and UCSC for many years. In 1997, my wife and I finally built our solar home powered by an off-grid solar array. I make my living as a computer consultant, but I've been a solar subversive all my adult life. My first book, Power Shift, described how the world can transition to 100% solar-powered energy systems and why we should do so. My new book, Solar Dividends, grew out of that first book and provides a new and, I hope, interesting way for how to make that happen. Okay, let's, let's start with some technical definitions. Uh, so that our audience is more or less clear about what we're talking about. Uh, how much electricity and energy is one kilowatt hour, and how much power is one kilowatt? I know my students have a difficult time differentiating between the two, and I'm not trying to put you in a spot. No problem. But, but you know, we're going to be throwing <laughs> these numbers around, and sure. it seems to me that's really important. Maybe you can give uh, some examples. So, sure, I do. So the yeah. audience has a sense. No problem. Um, a kilowatt, of course, is a thousand watts, and a watt is a unit of power. And power is the rate at which energy flows, sort of like a speedometer on your car. So a 10-watt LED bulb uses, well, 10 watts when it's on. So a hundred of them would use a kilowatt. A toaster or a microwave actually uses a whole kilowatt themselves while it is running. A kilowatt hour, on the other hand, is a unit of energy. One kilowatt of power running for one hour. If you ran your microwave at full power for an hour, that would use a kilowatt hour. A kilowatt hour is actually a lot of energy. For example, this is my favorite example actually, if properly used, your uh, one kilowatt hour could lift the Statue of Liberty five feet into the air. And it would cost you all 25 cents in New York City. For how long? 
it would lift it that high. It would provide enough oh, energy okay. to lift the as elevate as, it that as high. long as you so, had something underneath right. If, it, if you had okay. a winch set up to lift the Statue Got of Liberty, right. um, and you needed to power that winch, you could lift it up for one kilowatt hour. So that tells you how much energy is in a kilowatt hour. It's a lot. So another example is an electric car can go about four miles on a kilowatt hour. Uh, one of the things I, I I know that we're familiar with is that the, at rest, each of us is putting out power at the rate of 100 watts. And so uh, if you remember incandescent bulbs, that's about equivalent to a bright incandescent bulb. Yeah. Right. But it would right. take 10 hours to generate a kilowatt of a kilowatt, kilowatt hour of <laughs> of energy, right? Of yeah. energy equivalent, right? Yeah. Um, okay. I, I hope that, you know, makes that particular thing clear. Um, so let's, uh, can you provide us then with a general overview of the proposal you're presenting in solar dividends? Sure. Um, <clears throat> my idea is to use solar energy to eliminate poverty. The idea itself is straightforward. We set up solar panels for each person on solar farms, sell the electricity the panels generate, and deliver the money as solar dividends to the person as their basic income. It builds on the idea of unconditional basic incomes, which Andrew Yang has promoted in his presidential campaign. In such a program, people receive a basic amount of money every month unconditionally to keep them out of poverty. This is becoming more important as jobs disappear into robotics and artificial intelligence. But most basic income plans are paid for by raising taxes, and that's where they meet a lot of resistance. Instead, my plan generates a valuable commodity, electricity, and pays for that, and sorry, and sells that to pay for the program. I think this will be a more acceptable way to generate basic incomes. In my plan, we don't give people solar panels because many people can't act, use them directly because they don't own their roof and because they move. The panels are instead designed to set up on a permanent location in a cooperative-run solar farm, and the electricity that they generate is sold into the grid. The panels pay for themselves through the money they earn by generating electricity. After payoff, the money becomes the monthly solar dividend. The, the money itself won't run out because the panels are maintained and replaced as needed. And we don't have to wait for an international treaty to start this program because every country receives enough raw solar energy to set up their own program. So by investing in productive solar panels and adjusting how we price electricity, we can actually generate basic incomes for everyone without new taxes. So eliminating poverty becomes a whole new reason to build a lot of solar. If climate change doesn't motivate you, perhaps providing economic security for your children and grandchildren will. We could call this a poverty prevention program with an added side benefit of halting climate change. Even climate change deniers could get on board with that. In the future scenario I describe in my book, each newborn is granted a 10 kilowatt array at birth. The panels are installed in their name, but they don't actually own them, just the right to the electricity revenue. The first few years of operation pay off the panels, and then the electricity money goes into a solar escrow account. At age 18, they are given the escrow funds as a lump sum to start their adult life, and the solar revenue starts flowing directly into their bank account as their monthly basic income. In this way, we eliminate poverty before it starts. Of course, we won't prevent people from falling into poverty if they misuse their income, but society at least gives everyone a good chance to thrive.
Yeah, the, the idea of the basic income is uh, a, an intriguing one. I think you mentioned, and I sort of remembered Richard Nixon even talking about this, you know, 50 years ago now. Yeah, he did. Um, uh, Milton Friedman, um, a conservative economist, uh, proposed a, um, a sort of negative income tax, which would be right. uh, a way to bring everyone up to speed, a minimum basic income, so what it would be. Right. But it's always seen as uh, some kind of uh, some kind of grab. Um, well, it's always seen as a, a way for um, poor people to uh, sponge off of the rest of society. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> not working, people who are working may object to that. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's see. What, how, much, how much space would this take up? Okay. Um, this is, of course, a question that comes up. Is there enough, is there enough open space to accommodate... <laughs> The solar panels required yeah. to, you know, for 10 billion people, since sure. that's what we're going to be talking about. Yeah. Um, my program is based on photovoltaic panels, the solar panels that you see everywhere. Um, they convert sunlight directly to electricity, quietly and without any moving parts, which means that they can be put just about anywhere. Um, anywhere that's sun, that is. Um, and they don't have to consume the land if you can operate underneath them, as on a roof or a parking lot. They can even... Uh, be compatible with farming and ranching. I'm suggesting as a working number setting up uh, 10 kilowatts of solar panels per person. So how much is that? That would be an array of about 20 feet by 30 feet, which would be installed, as I said, on a solar farm. Because the person is receiving money, not electricity, the panels can be installed anywhere. City dwellers could have their panels in the countryside. If they move, the money can follow them, even though the panels do not. The array size can be adjusted for the location. Uh, sunny Arizona would need about 20% less, and cloudy Seattle, maybe about 20% more. Um, the cost of the panels these days is very reasonable. You can buy a 300-watt panel at Home Depot for $300, about a dollar a watt, mm -hmm. and less if you buy it in bulk. The racks, the wiring, the inverters, and the labor would be two to three times that, so the cost of a 10-kilowatt array would range from thirty dollars to $40,000. A, a 10 kilowatt array in an average U.S. location, such as Indianapolis, would generate about 13,000 kilowatt hours per year. If the utility paid only 5 to 10 cents per kilowatt hour, that would amount to only 50 to $100 per month, which is not much of a basic income. So that's where I introduced the only controversial part of my program, where I proposed that the utility would pay a dollar per kilowatt hour for electricity generated specifically from solar for basic incomes, what I call solar dividends. That would produce $13,000 per year in revenue. And if $1,000 goes to overhead, that leaves $12,000 delivered in solar dividends to the individual, or about $1,000 a month, equivalent to Andrew Yang's freedom dividend. Yeah, I want to I want to come back to the dollar a kilowatt question. But, sure. But I'm intrigued by the uh, the proposal to put the solar panels over uh, agricultural areas, and and you mention uh, solar solar panels that, that yes, uh, uh, sorry, semi-transparent solar panels, semi-transparent, yeah. which which one of our uh, physics professors here on campus has worked on exactly um, selective uh, passing selective frequencies. Yes, so, they're designed so that they're semi-transparent. The frequencies that they absorb are the frequencies needed by the electricity generation. The frequencies they pass through are the uh, frequencies needed by the plants. 
So you can have them generating electricity and the light that gets through still manages to grow the plants underneath. So you don't have a problem with compatibility between either or. You can do both. You know, I know it's been tried with greenhouses. Has anything like this been tried out in the field? No, that not that I know of. Um, hmm. The greenhouse application is the first obvious application because they already have a structure to put them on. Um, and what's the what's the capacity factor of the greenhouses? You know, this is something I should have asked Sue Carter, and I can't remember now ever asking. It's well, uh, when you say capacity factor, well, you mean I, I, the, the efficiency. Efficiency. Okay. Um, these are know? definitely lower efficiency at this yeah. stage. They're still in development. But, I shouldn't say that you can just go uh, out right now and buy these and put them up on your field, um, because that's it's probably not something you could do because of the efficiency in the lifetime expectancy yeah, yeah. of them um so but still... they are um something that is developing and could be in the f future toolkit for this whole thing um you can do uh other ways of doing agriculture is to put them on uh posts uh pole mounted systems with a tracker and yeah, yeah. um if you spread those out then it doesn't block all the sunlight yeah um we have to take a break okay you're listening to KSQD in Santa Cruz at 90.7 FM and ksqd.org on the web. KSQD thanks many listeners, the many listeners who contributed during our recent pledge drive. Your support makes it possible to bring you the many diverse programs you hear every day on KSquid, and we are very grateful. Listener support is essential to community radio KSquid. If you haven't recently contributed, please make a tax-deductible donation at ksqd.org before the end of the year and thanks very much okay i'm here speaking with robert staten about his new book uh solar dividends how solar energy can generate a basic income for everyone on earth and we've been talking largely about i think more of the technical aspect so far um and uh now i want to just turn to the economics of this for for a brief moment so the proposal envisions uh, electric utilities or distributors i suppose it would be paying a dollar a kilowatt hour for electricity generated by these uh solar farms uh and and i read the book and i understand it but i think our audience probably is wondering how you could get away with that right sure it's, it sounds a little shocking when you hear it for the first yes. time um, because most electricity costs um in the range of five to twenty twenty five cents per kilowatt hour so um a dollar kilowatt hour sounds pretty outrageous but keep in mind that the solar dividend solar farms becomes only a part of this total total electricity supply for the utility along with many other sources. So I'm proposing that utility regulators require the utility to pay a dollar per kilowatt hour only for electricity generated specifically for solar dividends from certified solar dividend farms. And they would do that for the combined social benefits of encouraging renewable energy to halt global warming, reducing poverty by providing basic incomes, and establishing a sustainable and clean energy system that won't run out. Those huge benefits justify the high price. This, of course, would lead to higher electricity prices, but not as high as you think. You won't see a dollar a kilowatt hour on your electric bill. The $1 cost to the utility is only for the part of the electricity supply from solar dividends. That gets rolled into the other sources that are cheaper. Your bill will actually reflect the average of all of the sources. At first, when only a few solar dividend farms are operating, there won't be much effect at all. 
As more farms are built and more of the electricity supply comes from that source, utility bills will gradually rise. If eventually, say, half the electricity supply costs a dollar and half costs 12 cents to the utility, then the average cost on the consumer's bill would only be about 56 cents per kilowatt hour. Now, let's put that in perspective. PG&E's baseline rate is currently 22 cents per kilowatt hour, and it goes up to 49 cents if you use so much that you go into the third tier of pricing. So 56 cents doesn't sound that much higher than 49 cents. And of course, the higher prices will be easier to pay for because you are receiving $1,000 per month in basic income. The solar dividend income is much more than the increase in the electricity cost. Now, that might sound a little circular, but it works because only individuals are eligible for solar dividends, not businesses, governments, or organizations. So they help pay for the program through their utility bills. And as my book explains, higher energy prices are coming anyway. Our current low prices derive from abundant fossil fuels whose full costs we simply do not pay. No one pays for global warming. So in a sense, we are cheating by paying low prices. We are foisting those high costs onto the next generations. Um, let's take a couple of these, of these points. I was just trying to do a quick calculation about how much uh, electricity this, if at, at full rollout, how much electricity would be generated, and what is, how does that compare to total energy consumption? I mean, one, a couple of things, right? We have to make the heroic assumption that we will actually considerably reduce our consumption of fossil fuels over the next 50 years, right? That's, yes. that's a basic, basic requirement. Yes. Um, and uh, in order to make renewables really practical, we have to engage in very intensive energy conservation. Yes. So I'm not quite sure, you know, there are all kinds of projections about energy use in 2050. Um, and so, have you, I mean, have you thought about that particular aspect? How much is going to be generated and what fraction of, of total electricity or energy use is this going to comprise? Well, I could run some numbers, but whatever numbers I run would be pretty speculative, um, of course. Well. <laughs> um, my goal eventually would be to see 100 terawatts of solar power installed okay. around the world. So I'm not just thinking in terms of the United States. No, I'm I understand. thinking in terms of the entire world energy supply, because this is, of course, a global problem, our supply of energy. Um, 100 terawatts would um, provide us with about 2 kilowatts per person on average. Um, and that would be enough to supply all of our energy needs if we put in place extensive energy conservation, um, not just conservation, but efficiency improvements. Yeah, of course. Where yeah. we basically do the same project or do the same product, but use a lot less energy to do it. Um, one of the other things that I see happening too is the reduction in the amount of um, throwaway goods. Um, because throwaway goods are basically enabled by cheap energy. And right. as the price of energy goes up, um, they will decline and we would have less throughput in our, in our whole energy system. Uh, our, sorry, our whole production system. Um, our landfills wouldn't need to ha handle so much junk that is used once and thrown away. So um, I think there are so many changes that are coming down that it's hard to say exactly uh, how this will play out. The point, I think, is to establish the basic principles of the program, which is that solar energy has value 
that value is spread all over the earth because solar energy is spread all over the earth. And because it is spread out, we can harvest that energy for the general good and for the uh, allow everyone to have a piece of that that economic pie, essentially. Uh-huh. Okay. So, um, so what, what what fraction of of that hundred terawatts? Say, uh, th- this is the other question, right? A dollar per kilowatt hour, but this is going to be balanced by other sources, right? So, sure. what are these other sources, and how much of the the total would they that comprise? Well, um, thinking, I actually figured 100 terawatts of solar PV yeah. and another 25 terawatts of other renewables, which would, I can think, consists primarily of wind, right. offshore wind and hydro. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a big fan of biofuels because I'm concerned about its use of land um, when we need to grow more food. But if there's a way to do it without consuming land, then I would be more in favor of it. But um, so you would end up with about 125 terawatts total mm-hmm. uh, for the energy system. And um, if you did 100 terawatts for every person on the planet um, and estimating about 10 billion people, that's about 10 kilowatts per person. Now, I don't think we're going to reach every person um, with this program. And that's um, total. That's not that's individual, total. right? Yeah. yeah. That should, we should be clear about that. That yeah. encompasses all of the activities that go on. All the activities, right. all the so, whole economic system. That would yeah. be replacing all fossil fuels, nuclear, and, and yeah. with, uh, yeah. with renewables. Yeah. But two kilowatts is, you know, is pretty good. I mean, that's certainly more than most people in the world get. And, yes. And it's probably more than most of us need at any one particular time. It's less than um, Americans get, but that's another story. Well, yeah, <laughs> but, you know, look what we what we use it for. Yeah. Um, what, well, what, the inevitable question is, of course, you know, what, what happens when the sun goes down? Well, of course, part of the uh, development of a 100% renewable energy system involves energy storage. Okay. And there's lots of research being done, lots of products already being developed. Um, batteries are one option, certainly. And uh, the kind of lithium batteries that we have now for cars work really well, but there are better batteries if you just need to store electricity. For example, there's this um, thing called a flow battery, where instead of storing the electricity as charged plates inside of the battery, you put the electricity into the liquid part of the battery and you flow that through the battery. And if you do it that way, then you can charge up the liquid, pull out the charged liquid and store it in a tank and put in some fresh liquid. And by flowing the liquid through, you can have a battery as big as a tank that you can build and tanks are cheap. So that would enable you to very easily store huge quantities of energy um, without the necessary of consuming all the lithium in the world. So. I, 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 the, when you first mentioned tank, I had, of course, my in my mind a, a military tank, oh, no, but you sorry. were a storage tank. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> liquid storage. Military tanks aren't that cheap yet. No. Um, uh, okay. Um, the, the, another option is yeah. methanol. Um, there's a. But you were just saying about talking about biofuel. I mean, this would be well, methanol well, is not a biofuel. Okay. Methanol Explain is uh, another alcohol, but it's made by a chemical process <clears throat> without biological processes. You mm-hmm. basically take. Um, um, water and carbon dioxide and run it through a series of steps and produce liquid methanol, which is a uh, fuel that works um, in cars if you want. The Most of the cars that run at the Indy 500 actually run on methanol. Mm-hmm. And they do that because it's safer fuel than gasoline. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So if there's a crash, it doesn't ignite the whole place. But um, it's well-proven 
as a fuel, but it also can be used in a fuel cell, which is a device that converts fuel, um, some sort of fuel into electricity directly. Most people are familiar with hydrogen fuel cells, which take hydrogen and convert it to electricity, but there are now methanol fuel cells. So you could run your methanol through, through such a device and generate electricity. So if you had a system set up where you convert your excess electricity on sunny and windy days to methanol, you could store that in tanks, storage tanks. And those tanks could be huge, just like the big oil tanks we have now. And then when you need the electricity, you feed it back through the fuel cells and generate the electricity on demand. I mm -hmm. think in the long run, a big portion of our energy supply will be going through some sort of storage system because- Well, it'll have to, right? I mean, if you think about it, that's what fossil fuels do best. They store energy. Right. And they've right. stored it for billion, millions of years. Um, and what we're doing now is basically trying to recreate that part of the energy system um, using direct sunlight and wind. Yeah, um, that's pretty, that's gonna be pretty tricky though, isn't it? Well, um, it's not tricky actually, it's just gonna be add to the expense. And so, well, I, I meant in, well, well, we'll talk about politics in, in a, after the break, but, okay. um, you know, the, some of my questions are directed to that. Um, well, you're listening to, uh, KSQD. What, am I doing it okay? You're listening to KSQD, uh, 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz and KSQD.org on the web. Um, so join KSQD this weekend for the program. On Being, as host Krista Tippett speaks with poet and philosopher David White. White shared a deep friendship with the late Irish philosopher John O'Donoghue and believes in the power of a beautiful question amid the drama of work and life. White has recently written about the consolation, nourishment, and underlying meaning of everyday words. On Being airs Sunday at 6 p.m. here at KSquid 90.7 FM and ksqd.org on the internet. Many voices, one station. You're listening to Sustainability Now, and my guest today is Robert Staten, who has just published a book called Solar Dividends, How Solar Energy Can Generate a Basic Income for Everyone on Earth. Uh, and we've been talking most recently about some of the logistics, uh, the technical logistics in particular, what do you do when the sun goes down if everything is, is solar, and uh, how do you store the energy? And Bob was talking about methanol as one storage medium in addition to batteries. Um, so uh, I mentioned a lot of this is kind of tricky, right? And of course, there are a number of technical aspects uh, and features that have, would have to be worked out. Um, the the uh, the tricky part about it is is that there's an existing infrastructure right there's a that once when we start to think about sort of transitioning from the current energy infrastructure to this new one right it's very it's it's fairly straightforward to think about the future and certainly what we've got now well we've got now but the problem is always how do you get from here to there? And this is something, I mean, I taught this past fall, I taught Thinking Green at UCSC, and I kept emphasizing, you know, it's great to have dreams, but you've got to figure out how to get there. So how do you, do you have you thought about that? Uh, you, well, let me, you, you mentioned a great energy crisis in 2025, and uh, a crisis is a wonderful way to mobilize people's minds and, and actions, right? Uh, but in another way, <clears throat> it's a trick. It's a writer's trick. Right. All right. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, the, the nice thing about solar is that it can be introduced incrementally. 
Um, we started very small, of course, when solar was very expensive and people put solar in and integrated in, uh, into and connected to the utility companies. And um, that works. Um, what we're talking about is continuing that incremental process of introducing more and more renewable energy um, on a gradual basis. And the, the nice thing about things like photovoltaics and wind is they produce electricity, which is completely compatible with our current grid system. Right. Um, so it can feed into the grid. And what's lacking is the ability to, as you say, provide it when the source isn't available, the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. So that's where it needs to be combined in the utility system as part of an energy storage system. And that's already being done as well. There's a wind farm in Texas that when it was built, it built into itself an energy storage system. And they did that and it proved economic for them because they found that they could shift when they sell the electricity to when the prices were higher. Right. So um, the storage system worked out very well for them. Um, so the energy storage is being put in place by utility companies as well because it helps them even out their own control of their system. Um, it allows them to control the voltage and disperse the currents and, and all the other factors that they need to control better if they have this buffer that allows them to absorb and, and deploy energy on demand. Do, but what, do, you, do you envision utilities going over to direct current uh, or, or going ahead and converting to all... Uh, this is a bit of a technical point, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> but but when, you, when you transform uh, solar electricity, which is direct current, yeah. to uh, alternating current, which is what we get out of our walls, you lose... You know, there's a certain efficiency loss to that. And often, we convert the AC back to direct current for our televisions and all of our electronic gadgets. So I'm just wondering. Right, this is a, a, an obscure, opaque technical point. I just wanted to ask you about it. Well, um, that, there actually was a movie about DC versus AC recently. Yeah, you may no, I saw the too, Tesla right? versus yeah. Westinghouse was, thing. It was interesting. Yeah. Um, but in this case, uh, we're, we have an AC operating system infrastructure that we're going to keep for sure. Um, all of the power lines, transformers, houses, you, appliances and everything are set sure. up for AC. We're not going to sure. change that. Um, what will come in from DC probably is primarily transmission lines, which is not something that the ordinary person uh, has to encounter. Um, they're putting in place higher voltage DC transmission lines to be able to transport electricity over greater distances. And one of the reasons they're doing that is particularly for wind farms, which are often in really windy places where nobody lives. Yeah. So they want to be able to transport the electricity um, from where it's available to where it can be used. And they also are looking in terms of um, sharing renewable energy across wider land areas mm -hmm. so that when it's windy in one place and not in another, they can shuttle some of the energy from one place to another without having to store it if they do that kind of a sharing process. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, My guest a couple of weeks ago was Dustin Mulvaney who talked, we talked about what do we do with a problem like PG&E. So the question of the distribution network came yeah, up. Sure. Uh, and of course, the distribution network is partly responsible for the, for the fires, the wildfires of the last couple of years. Um, and we had a conversation about sort of, you know, microgrids as a, as a possible alternative. And it strikes me that your, your proposal 
in many ways lends itself to that kind of decentralized uh, distribution system. Yeah, I actually envision the utilities of the future as a more decentralized distribution system than mm -hmm. as uh, what their current role, which is building gigantic power plants in, in certain locations and then distributing the electricity over hundreds of square miles. Um, the installation of solar can take place anywhere. Wind is often distributed in different places. And the utilities role in that case would be more of integrating all of these various sources to coordinate them and to distribute the energy and to provide the energy storage services. So eventually, and, and in any way, utilities like PG&E are getting out of the um, electricity generating business entirely yeah, right. and, and, and buying it from various third parties. So they are already on the path to becoming distribution and energy storage service companies instead of the source of all the electricity that they produce. Right. That was a consequence largely of the so-called deregulation of the 1990s. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't remember. I'm not sure the utilities were altogether happy about that. No, probably because, not. Because it, it sort of messed up their financial uh, arrangements, you know. But um, Well, they had complete control over the entire yeah, electricity yeah, grid at one point, and they right. really liked that control, of course. But um, what this does is it would shift their role. They could still make money in the system by um, <laughs> by transporting energy and by storing it and charging for those services. Um, it would just be a different model for them to adapt to. Yeah. Um, well, do you have, I mean, can you think of any uh, comparable situations in, in the recent past, you know, the past hundred years or so, that might resemble the kind of transition you're talking about? Um, I think I just came up with an idea, but I want to hear from you because, because obviously there's a lot of politics involved yeah. in this. I mean, the energy system is uh, fundamentally political. Yeah. And if we haven't learned that, if I haven't learned that in 40 years of doing this stuff, you know, certainly I, I, I see that now. Um, so in thinking, again, I want to sort of emphasize the transition. All right. I'm putting you on the spot. Here, right. Right. And. Can you think of anything comparable? Yeah, actually, um, something similar to what I'm proposing in terms of um, uh, doing a lot of solar and, and it, doing it from the uh, grassroots up was done in Germany, starting in the 2000. Um, Germany made the decision to um, provide incentives to build a solar energy industry. Right. And the way they did that was they put in place very high buyback rates for electricity generated from solar or wind. Right. And that was all they did. They didn't have to um, uh, mandate anything. They just said, we're going to pay more for solar electricity and put it out there. And the response was phenomenal. Um, people looked at those rates and went, wow, I can make money on solar. And they started so installing solar energy and connecting it up and getting payments. Um, there was a great example of a dairy farmer who was struggling with his expenses of his dairy farm and put up an array of solar panels to supplement his income. And uh, he thought that the arrangement was really great. And what it did was it drove Germany to become the leading installer of solar energy in the world mm -hmm. over the course of a few years. It mm -hmm. happened so fast that they actually had to cut back the program because they were getting too much solar energy and they weren't ready to handle it on the grid. So... That was a case where setting the rate created an incentive that drove individuals to make the decision to pursue this. And that's something that I would like to see happen for solar dividends, 
um, the primary driver for it would be these high buyback rates. And if you put those in place and make it exclusively for solar dividends, then that would be enough of an incentive for co-ops to form um, because they would be guaranteed a rate mm-hmm. and the banks would be willing to finance it because solar energy is very reliable over the long run. Right. Um, so they would be guaranteed of a revenue stream to pay off the loans. Mm-hmm. And individuals would be motivated to join because if not for themselves, they would gain a benefit for their children or grandchildren. Um, You could sign your child up for a 10 kilowatt array at birth. And then the money that would be used, uh, uh, generated by the system at first would be used to pay off the panels, say three or four or five years when the child is young. And then after it's paid off, the money could go into a solar escrow account until the child turns 18. And at 18, they gain control of that escrow account as a starting fund for their adult life. And then the income transfers over to becoming their monthly income, uh, basic income delivered directly to their checking account. So um, with that kind of a system in place, I think you would see a public demand for it. Um, that could overcome some of the resistance that the utilities and government would put in place to sort of slow this process down. That's my hope, anyway. Yeah, well, now I'm going to be a politics professor. Okay. I mean, Germany, you know, Germany did this, and, and the state, the government, yeah. really did take a lead on that. And I don't remember exactly yeah. the political configuration. It might have been a social during the Social Democrat Green Coalition period, um, and of course, it proved very popular. We, of course, here, and we're you know thinking about the United States, are yeah. in a rather different situation. Although you know the state government, state of California, has has pushed a lot on a lot of these issues, and so uh, one could imagine this becoming um, you know gradually starting to penetrate the system. Yeah, and it, it doesn't have to be done at a national level no, by any yeah, means. It could yeah. be done at state level. It could be done at the level of a municipal utility um, even. Remember Upton Sinclair? Uh, yeah. Right? That's He actually had a, a program like this. I can't remember what it was called, but um, when he ran for governor back in the 20s or 30s. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah. Um, Emily, our engineer, is looking it up, uh, but but there was something something similar to that. Um, uh, anyway, well, but because my... solar is um, uh, distributed um, and it can be done at any scale, you can do this on a small scale or a large scale. Um, you could do it at the national level. I think the politics in the U.S. are so polarized right now, though, it's difficult to see anything like this coming about in the near future. Um, I could see it happening more in a state um, or a city. Um, I also think that maybe the U.S. is going to be one of the last ones to do it and that Europe will lead in this program and um, make it happen sooner than the U.S. You know, my philosophy at this point is that you really have to start with, uh, with pilot examples and try and do it on a smaller scale. Well, that's exactly and, what my book proposes. Yeah, I have yeah, a whole chapter on, I think, yes, in order to make this happen. Uh, this is a, a very new idea. Um, whenever I present this, uh, people go, wow, that's very interesting, but I've never heard of this before. Um, so I can't give examples of it working, of course. No. So, But, but that's what the, the goal of a pilot program would be, uh, would be to set it up in a way that we would have solar arrays installed 
and they would generate electricity. The electricity would be sold into the grid and the money would be used to pay for a basic income for a select group of people. And you would probably start it with um, low-income people, be selective in that regard, because that's where it would have the most impact. Um, but of course, the utility is not going to sign on to that immediately and start paying a dollar a kilowatt hour no. unless they're being very generous or if they're forced to by the state. But you could um, simulate it in a pilot program by having another source of funding so that it would look like it's coming from the utility, but it's actually being um, transferred via blockchain or some other payment process yeah, yeah. Uh, to make it look like it's coming in as the um, payment for the solar dividends from the utility company. The, the point would be to study the effect on the people who are receiving the money and to study how much solar is installed and what kind of incentive this would create in the public for seeing these kinds of uh, programs put in place. And I think once uh, the public, once these um, programs are studied and the benefits are documented, that that would give ammunition to advocates and to uh, sympathetic politicians to try an actual pilot program with a utility company, basically mm -hmm. asking them, asking the regulatory body to uh, set the rate for a small scale and see how it actually works in real life. Yeah, here, there's a proposal for the California Energy Commission. Um, Emily just looked up uh, Upton Sinclair. His, his program was called End Poverty in California, or EPIC, uh, and it was essentially a, a Keynesian public works program, much like the, uh, the federal government was doing. He ran for governor in 1934. So it wasn't a guaranteed wage, no. but it was certainly a, a full employment um, program and and by the way he wrote the jungle so uh, -huh. uh and i always confuse upton sinclair and sinclair lewis all right uh, but no, no matter okay uh, i'm going to take a the short break we're you're listening to ksqd in santa cruz at 90.7 fm and ksqd.org online uh and i want to encourage you to tune in to ksqd tomorrow night monday at 6 p.m for climate one produced by the commonwealth club Climate One is a very timely forum for candid discussion among climate scientists, policymakers, activists, and concerned citizens with a focus on energy, the economy, and the environment. Sakes alive, that's what we're doing right here. Uh, climate One airs Monday evening at 6 p.m. right after Talk of the Bay here on KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. Is it on every Monday night? Well, anyway, it's at least tomorrow, Monday, Monday, tomorrow. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, so, you know, let's, let's try, I, I'm still sort of interested. Well, I, I thought about two major transitions, right? Uh, in our sort of ways of life, let's call it in our social systems. The first one was from horses to cars, right? Which of course relied on the rise of the petroleum industry. But it was not really sort of set and trained by the state, right? It was, it was very much, I think, a market-produced sort of process, and highways came later, paved highways came later. Uh, on the other hand, the breakup of AT&T in the 1980s was an antitrust movement, right? And then they started beginning to auction off uh, the microwave spectrum for, for cell phones. It was also a state initiative, and now, of course, we've got cell phone monopolies, but we have a very different kind of phone system instead of 
you know, landlines only and the black basic phone. We've got, we've got all kinds of things and smartphones, and that certainly has had a major impact on the way that people communicate with each other, whether it's for good or better or worse. Um, uh, as a troglodyte, I'm less sure. But, but, you know, this is the kind of sort of the, the, the visioning that I think is really important. Well, that was actually part of the uh, motivation for uh, the deregulation of energy in California was the um, result from the phone company breakup. Um, they wanted to do the same thing, make the energy industry more competitive by uh, breaking up the big monopoly utilities and yeah. forcing them to allow uh, other generators to participate in the system. And of course, it led to great abuses. Um, the Enron scandal was, was yeah. the classic case where the whole system was totally abused and it didn't work out quite well for the customers at all. Um, but it did have the effect of um, noting that utility companies do have a monopoly, essentially. And it's a natural monopoly because they we don't want competing utility lines spread all over the place. Um, uh, but we do want to be able to have other participants in the program. And so part of what, because electricity is regulated by the state, there are opportunities for that regulation to include other parties and solar dividends could fit into that regulation scheme. Of, of course, utilities aren't natural monopolies anymore. I mean, they own the distribution system, right? But right, right. here in Santa Cruz, we've got right. Monterey Bay Community Power, which is right. selling electricity. It's buying right. it somewhere and selling it. Right. So, so, you know, maybe there's there's a... There's a first step. There are definitely opportunities, I think. Um, it's a matter of knowing where to start first. So, uh, you know, of course, one of the big questions is how this might happen in the global south. Well, um, this idea is highly adaptable, I think, to local conditions. I have an example in the book of how a program might work in Kenya, for example. Um, consider a village without electricity and little cash. They would not seem to be a good candidate for this because they couldn't buy the electricity. So instead, you could install a solar farm near a city like Nairobi, where reliable electricity is in demand and high rates can be afforded. Keep in mind that it's only the money that needs to be transferred to the village. Once the money starts flowing into the village from the solar dividends, the people who live there could afford to set up their own solar panels and buy things like electric pumps, refrigerators, and lights to upgrade their lives, and eventually um, bring that uh, huge portion. There's a, about a billion people in the world that don't have electricity now mm -hmm. um, that could eventually be brought into getting energy services and upgrading their lives through that process. Um. But, you know, I can sort of see here in the United States working out the arrangements for a, a dollar a kilowatt hour. But the money would have to come from somewhere. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you say the money would have to come from somewhere, it comes from utility bills. And so that's what happens is that dollar kilowatt hour gets folded into utility bills and everyone who buys electricity pays into it. No, I'm thinking about in places like Kenya. Well, in cities which, where they have electricity. Um they use electricity and they pay utility bills. Uh-huh. So. Okay. Well, um, so is there anything, anything I have left out, you know, as, as is often the, the case, <laughs> how about transportation and industry? I know you mentioned that in the book and we haven't really talked about that transportation in particular. What is, well, there's a whole, um, uh, the whole idea here is to eventually as part of, the uh, benefits of solar dividends is to generate a lot of solar electricity to replace fossil fuels with the goal eventually of 
of um, eliminating fossil fuels. So you have to examine every energy use of fossil fuels that takes place now and figure out how you're going to substitute something for it. Mm -hmm. Transportation is already happening because electric cars are becoming more and more popular. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the car companies are actually talking about making only electric cars, which I'm a little surprised at at this point, but they have an optimistic future for electric cars. And um, UPS is just about to buy a bunch of electric delivery vehicles, for example. So it's scaling up. Um, of course, in Europe, electric trains have been around for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain cases of, of um, transportation that are a little more difficult to convert. For example, uh, airplane travel. Um, although there are currently electric airplanes being tested for short short flights, yeah, um, yeah, for short that. commercial flights. But long term, um, it's unlikely we will have uh, electric planes traveling across the Atlantic. But one thing that solar energy is, is nothing but versatile. And you can actually take um, some of that methanol, for example, and run it through a couple more processes and generate aviation fuel out of it. So theoretically, you could produce um, airplane flight with solar energy. Whether or not it would be cost effective and people could afford to fly it is another question, but that depends on how the technology plays out. But it is possible to do it. So... Um, There's a lot of industry that currently um, can convert. For example, um, the uh, mining industry is already in the process of trying to convert to renewable energies. There's a copper mine in Chile that is uh, scheduled to be go 100% renewable uh, next year. And a lot of the big um, mining trucks that are rolling around um, transporting the materials in mines actually have electric motors on their their wheels. They have an electric motor on each of the wheels that gives them a high degree of maneuverability and a right. high degree of torque to get started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But currently they have a generator on board to generate the electricity to drive those wheels. So if instead you had batteries or fuel cells on board, you could run those trucks now on solar electricity. That's actually how a lot of the trains and the high-speed trains in Europe get their electricity now that I think about it. Okay. It's, um, the overhead, there are trains with overhead lines, but they actually have diesel generators to elect to, to generate the electricity right because i remember getting stuck in the channel tunnel during one very cold winter oh my when uh i think it was that the the diesel generators or something froze up oh god it was it was a real snafu yeah um <sighs> but no i know i i mean i i I, under, I understand that um well I'm just looking here. What have we what have we not talked about? Or maybe you have well, some things you want to bring up. One of the things I want to emphasize is there's a very strong social justice component to mm-hmm. this program. Yeah. Um, fossil fuels are unevenly distributed around the world, leading to great concentrated wealth. Um, think of the uh, the kings and princes in Saudi Arabia, for example, um, or the few countries that have solar wealth, and and how it almost always goes to a few individuals, the oligarchs within the country. Um, and that wealth never seems to get down to all the people that should yeah. benefit from it. Um, but with solar, no one owns the sun. Um, no one owns the energy flowing off the surface of the sun. No one owns the energy as it passes through the atmosphere. There is really no fundamental reason why this energy cannot be shared among all people. We could even establish solar energy as a human right, a right to a share of our planet's primary energy source. And if we do share it, then we can eliminate poverty. Everyone gets a share of the economic pie because energy is the one commodity that 
every economy must have to function. So sharing the energy system gets everyone in on the ground floor of the economy. And because solar energy doesn't run out, it's good for their whole life. Uh, th- th- that um, There was a big, big debate about water as a human right some years ago with uh, the water companies saying, well, no, yeah, you can't, that's sure. not going to work because, right? <laughs> well, um, the one but, difference but, is that water is already owned by people and well, you're, you're dealing with existing rights, whereas solar energy... Who owns the sun? Nobody. Not yet. Not yet. Well, you know, I am sure there are ingenious lawyers, patent lawyers out there who are trying to figure out how to do that since no doubt. we're, we're pri- proposing to privatize the atmosphere with uh, carbon emission permits and cap and trade. That's true. Right? Right. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't doubt that, but, but declaring the sun a commons, you know, strikes me as another sort of... Uh, politically attractive move right I mean, yes. I mean i think that that would be a, a good good piece of the campaign well, one nice thing about it is that you're not taking away anything from someone because nobody owns it now you are basically <laughs> declaring a source that's already available well, to everyone as guaranteed to be available to them so. i'm gonna i'm gonna reveal myself <laughs> here capitalism is about taking things from other people sure right and so uh I, you know i i, I wouldn't uh, i wouldn't begin to uh to, to, to make claims. So that's that's where the politics comes in, sure. right? And making I understand sure that, that, yes. that nobody tries to do that. Right. Um, but, and that's a particular sort of bugaboo. I guess that's the well, word of mine. You know, sometimes I'm not sure that the world is ready for this idea. Um, but I think unless we put forth positive visions, visions of how the world can be, um, we won't ever get there. So if I could read a short Bucky Fuller quote. Sure. You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Well, that was Buckminster Fuller, and, and I'm going to invoke Ursula Le Guin, who basically did a, did a piece on it. It California as a cold place to be, and I can't remember the full title, but it, it's, a, it's a wonderful essay in which she addresses the question of utopia and says, basically, you know, you can't come at utopia full on. You have to kind of sidle towards it. And this is basically right. that, again, models models can be created, but the real trick is is how do you put it into operation? Well, one of the things that I'm hoping is to do this kind of under the radar, because well, um, this can be done without a government um, uh, it, uh, making a law that has that permits it, you do have to eventually get the government involved through the utility regulation process. Right. Um, but you could start the process now with people um, installing solar and distributing the money as it is. So um, I think it's it's possible to adapt this to a lot of different ways, and in in the long run, I think it will prove its value, and um, hopefully enough people will want to sign on to do it. Have you have you pitched this to anyone in Sacramento? Not yet. Um, I'm. I have a whole list of people I need to contact about this. Um, part of the problem is getting through to them. Um, actually, I did send uh, something to the head of the uh, natural resources, um, but I didn't hear back. Yeah, that's not the place to go. Right. But we'll talk. We can talk about that later. Right. Okay. Uh, we have three minutes left. And uh, anything else that you have in there, Bob, that you want to? Um, well, let's see here. Uh, uh, well, no, I, I, <laughs> sorry. 
no matter. Well, listen, we've been talking to Bob Staten, whose recent book, Solar Dividends, has just was just published, and he he makes a a what many people would say is a radical proposition. Uh, but actually, if you start to think it through, maybe it's not so radical as it appears. And I think your target date is 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 what is at the end of the century, right? So we do have some time. Fifty we get, years or so. If yeah. we get to the end of the century, yeah. we have time. We have time to put this into operation. No, we need and, to start now to get yeah, of course, it by the and, end of the century. And I'm going to go home and start thinking about about the politics of this and how you could start to uh, to pitch it so and well, i'm not allowed to do that on the radio right well one of the things i'm hoping is to okay. engage a lot more people in this because i don't want to feel like i'm the only one sure. that has this idea sure. and I, I want to stimulate other people thinking about it and contributing to how it can go so i have a website solardividends.org if you want to take a look at that um and uh, hopefully get engaged okay well thank you so uh, everyone seems to be out of town on December 29th, so I'm not sure whether there will be a show that day. But in January, I'm going to be welcoming David Bloom of Bloom Distillation in Watsonville, which produces alcohol, fertilizer, and other products from organic wastes. And then on January 26th, I will welcome the promised, previously promised members of Extinction Rebellion to talk about their movement strategies, goals, and activities. If you've missed previous broadcasts, you can find the archived shows at tinyurl.com backslash R-E-S-D-6-J-B. But even better would be to write to me to ask for that URL at ronnyl at ksquid.org. As I have said, fan mail from a flounder is always welcome. So until next, every other Sunday, sustainability now.